All right. As we are digging into our continuing in with our story of David and, and the Psalms that he wrote at various points, um, this week we we've made a bit of a jump. We're all, we've gone from towards the end of First Samuel. Now we're into Second Samuel in chapter five, and and a number of things have happened since then. So when we left David, or where we were with David last week, he was still being pursued by Saul, the King Saul. He was still coming after him with all of his armies, and and he was still trying to kill David. And David was still running away, and he was hiding in caves, and he had just a few outcasts surrounding him and, and trying to survive. Well, now Saul has died. Saul's passed away. And it wasn't David that killed him. No, Saul passed um, because he went to war. He went to war with the Philistines. And because God was not on his side, he died at the hands well, at the hands of, of, of one of his own army men, actually. But um, I invite you to go read that story. But then after Saul was died, David was installed as the king of Judah. Now, that's not the entire nation of Israel. It was just... It was just one portion of it. And so as he was the king of Judah, slowly he consolidated the tribes of Israel together under his kingdomship, whom he had been anointed by God. And so um, he was then later installed as, six or seven years later after that, installed as the king over all of Israel. And throughout this, he'd been a faithful follower of God, and this is why God has been blessing him. And as what we get to see in our passage for, for this week and over the next couple of weeks, um, is kind of the heights of, of David's faithfulness in his kingdom and, and as being a king and as being the leader of, of Israel. Now, here's one thing to mention, because I hope that you do read between where we left off last week and, and up to this week. David made some mistakes on the way. He, not just mistakes, but outright sinned. And, and specifically, one of those is that he took a number of women to be his wives and to be his concubines. And that's going to cause problems later on in the story. We'll see that come. Because sin always does cause problems. It never it just happens and then stays to itself. It continues to corrupt outwards. But for now, right now, David's still being faithful, still following. And, and those things that are happening under the surface haven't quite surfaced yet. And so I invite you to join with me in Second Samuel chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 17 and read through verses 25. Um, so verse 17, we read this. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. I'm going to stop right there. We're not going to get to the rest of it later. So David, he's back to this question that he's been asking throughout his life. And that I often find myself asking, and I've heard from a number of you that something that we continually ask as part of life of, what do I do now? Right? He's been on the run. He's endured all the suffering and persecutions and trials. And now he's finally been made king, not over Judah, but then over the entire uh, nation of Israel. He's consolidated everyone underneath him. And as soon as that happens, the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, those who have tr- continually tried to oppress him, say, we need to nip this in the bud immediately. Let us go seek and find and kill this David guy before he can turn Israel into a formidable foe. So David is in this position of, what do I do now? This is his first really big test as the king over all of Israel. Because like David, we're finite. We as humans, we we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what else is going on in the world. We don't know the plans of other men or women. And there are many times right, in my life, and I'm sure David had this, and, and perhaps you have this too, where... I just wish there was somebody around who could tell me what to do. 
to point forth and say, this is the right decision. Go forth, do this. This is what you are meant to do. This is what is going to turn out well in the end. Now, the great news for David and the great news for us is that we worship a God who does know the future, who does know everything else that's going on, who does know the hearts and the minds of all of humankind. And He does show us the right way to go. And not only that, right? And this is a part that I think is so easy for us to take for granted that we're going to kind of sit in and explore for a little bit today is that God not just is all-powerful, not just is omniscient, not is just able to, to, to give us good counsel, but He's also not some guru who sits on the top of some mountain or in some high places and requires us to journey to Him, to talk to Him for a brief moment before we go back into our lives. No, God has come down to us and He comes down to us and He comes down to us to lead us Himself. And that's our big idea for this passage. That's what I want to focus on and what I believe the passage here is having us focus on and pointing out through David's example here is that we are able to follow God because He leads us. And so thinking back to last week and our message from last week, so the provision here that God has is that God leads us Himself. He comes down, He leads us, not just directs us, not just uh, sits back behind us, or in some far off place um, where we can go seek Him for counsel. No, He comes to us and He leads us. And our response then, if God is leading, if God Himself is leading us, is that we follow. And so my hope for this passage, and as we explore, as we study this, is that we get to maybe see for, for fresh eyes or just be reminded of some of the extraordinary ways in which God leads us. Because there's often times that we can take the ways that God leads us and God provides for us for granted. And I hope that we get to uh, emphasize and, and really appreciate just how extraordinary the things that God does and has done on our behalf are. So, before we go on to read the rest of the scripture, I invite you, would you pray for me, um, for God to help us. Dear Lord, as we dig into your scripture, as we study your words, may you send your Holy Spirit, may you work in our hearts and our minds and our bodies and our souls and our hands that we would learn, we would be affected, and then, Lord, our lives would be changed and we would go forth from a full heart, from the overflowing of your love to go out and do the work you have before us. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's continue reading on there in Second Samuel. So the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Peretzim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. And therefore the name of the place is called Baal Peretzim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the same valley, the valley of Rephaim. 
And David inquired of the Lord. He said, you shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. All right. So God leads us. So we are able to follow God because God leads us. And one of those ways in which he does this is he directs us. God directs us. And this passage is two very explicit examples of God directing David. In verses 19 and verses 23, we read the same series of things happening. David goes and he inquires of the Lord before he's about to do something. And then it's followed up with the Lord said. And he gives David these instructions of what the Lord, of what David is supposed to do. Now, this seems like such a simple concept. David saying, God, what do I do? And then God saying, okay, here you go. Well, under the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai, it wasn't quite that simple. The king, David, would have to go through the high priest. And the high priest would have to go through the set of rituals that God had set out for them to inquire of his wisdom, of his direction. And it's easy um, to read all of this and even to read and hear about that and think, oh, okay, this probably happened in a matter of moments or in a matter of maybe hours even. But it's probably not the case. When this happened, so we have a clear accounting of this kind of process happening back in 1 Samuel 13, uh, back when King Saul was still in power and he was waiting to inquire of the Lord for what he should do in this battle against the Philistines and he was waiting for seven days for the prophet Samuel to come and to inquire of the Lord for him and he got impatient because all his people were leaving him and were scattering about and he needed, he thought, yeah, I need to go attack the Philistines now. I can't wait this long for the, for the inquiry to happen. And then who knows how long it's going to take for God to respond to this. And so he did it himself without the priest. And God stripped him of his kingdom because of it. Still, how nice would that be? How nice would it be to be able to go and consult a high priest, a person, and, and, and get a definitive direction, even if you knew you were going to have to wait for a while, right? If I knew I was going to have to wait for a week to get direction, I would still be okay with that. That would be fine. And we do have that. That's the thing. Even though the high priest, we don't have a high priest in, in the church, in the body of church, um, as a person. But we do have a high priest. It's very explicit. The book of Hebrews talks all about it, how our high priest is so much greater than the high priest that David was able to talk with because our high priest is Jesus, is God himself acting as our mediator with God the Father. And so when we inquire of God, the way that He has instructed us to do so is through prayer. To come to God and through the intercession of the Holy Spirit that He's given us and through the mediation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who became one of us, who considers us a brother and sister in Him, we inquire of the Lord, we inquire of God, and through that, through Himself, through His own intercession, He directs us. And here's the thing about following God 
and allowing God to lead, to be our leader, to direct us, is that it may not always happen on our timeline. There is no definitive direction in the Bible about how long it's going to take for God to give us direction. But the definitive thing that we do read is that God is leading us. He is directing us. And when we pray to Him, right, He does hear us and He responds. Now there's another example of God directing us and it's in this verse 21 where the Philistines left their idol on the ba- idols on the battlefield and David and his men came and they carried them away. Uh, and this reads like a simple sequence of action, right? As, uh, the, they left them on, on, they left the idols scattered about, whatever they looked like, a bunch of chunks of wood, metal, gold, silver, stone, whatever it might be. And then David and his men took them and they, and they carried them away. And that's that. Well, um, we get a little more in First Chronicles verses fourteen or chapter fourteen, verse eight. It's the same exact passage um, as being read here, but they also go on to say there that when David gave the command, and they were burned, they burned up the idols. And why do that might seem like a nice little bit of revisionist uh, history? The Chronicles saying, "Oh, this is what was written over here in Second Samuel." Well, they were supposed to burn them, so we're going to say that they burned them. Well, pretty pretty uh, easy to say that no, that what he wrote there is actually what happened because what David is doing when his men had come and they carry those idols away is they are then following the directions that God gave them in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses five and twenty-five where he dictates that all idols must be destroyed and burned. So David here, David, he's faced with a situation. What do you do? What do you do with these idols, these gods that the Philistines worshipped? Well, he didn't need to consult the high priest on this one because he already knew what God's explicit direction was by God's law. And so he followed it. And so he said, this is what I was told to do. This is what God says to do. And so I will follow it and go and do it. Now, we don't live under the ancient, in ancient Israel. We're not um, governed by the Mosaic Covenant. So how do the laws of God in the Old Testament apply to us today? Right, Because they are in the Bible, they are instructions from Jesus, they are worth reading and directing us. So how do we apply them? How do we use them? Well, first of all, with the knowledge and, and through the lens that Jesus came explicitly to fulfill these laws, given forth in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and so on. And because He died for our sins, because He rose again and offered us eternal life through our belief in Him, We live under a covenant that has fulfilled the purpose of these laws in the Old Testament. These laws in the Old Testament were to show people how to live and how to follow God and how to be in right standing with Him. Well, Jesus, by His actions, has made us in right standing, not because of anything that we do, but because of what He did. And so what does that mean? Well, that means that let's keep with that standard. We talked about this back in our series on Leviticus, that if any Old Testament law is repeated, is given again in the, in the New Testament, we can be pretty sure that that law still stands. That is still a good guideline for us. Now, it's not something that condemns us anymore. If we break it, we're not out of right standing with God because through Jesus we have forgiveness. But it still applies. It's still something for us to follow. It's still something for us to abide by. 
in following God. It is his direction still. So if it's, but if it's not specifically stated in the New Testament, not stated as something that we should continue to follow, it's a good idea, a good guideline for us to consider how does that law in the Old Testament, even if we aren't living in ancient Israel, declare God's holiness and declare God's love for his people? And how can we then apply that, apply the spirit behind the law through the context of the greatest commandment that Jesus gives, the one that he says sums up all of the laws and all of the prophets in the Old Testament, which is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So, What am I saying? I'm saying we should be intimately familiar with the laws that God gives in the Old Testament. They're not things that we simply read over and they have no application for us today. Why? Because they still reveal to us the heart and the mind and the desires of God. They reveal His holiness and they reveal His love. And though we live in a covenant that has fulfilled the purpose of these laws, we can still find direction in them. We can still find how are we supposed to treat the sojourner? How are we supposed to treat the immigrant? How are we supposed to treat those who are in debt? How are we supposed to treat our fellow countrymen? All of those things are explicitly addressed in God's Old Testament law. And it's easy to take these laws for granted or or to kind of read over some of the more obscure ones and, and think of them as irrelevant, but Consider some of the problems that we are trying finally to address as society. The massive inequality that we are experiencing in America and all of the root causes of this, one of those being the absurdly high interest rates, also known as payday loans that we give out to those in poverty that are routinely between 300 and 500% APR. And those are legal. And they're designed to trap a person in the cycle of debt so that they can't get out of it. Under God's law, loans like this, and, and indeed he even goes a lot further than this, I invite you to read about it, are outlawed. He says that you cannot do that. Do not give loans like that. In fact, he even goes so far as to say, if you're giving a loan to a fellow countryman, charge no interest. What a radical shift in thinking and in economics that would be for our country. Another one that we are struggling with, another one that greatly impacts uh, the inequality and affects the inequality that we're facing right now is wage theft. There are estimates uh, that $15 billion a year are uh, committed in wage theft in America and almost exclusively committed by Fortune 500 companies against low-income earners, that is, those who are earning around the federal poverty level or down through minimum wage. That's an extraordinary amount of money. And it comes out to about $3,300 per person, according to a Forbes article, which I think it was a GQ article. And thinking about the stimulus that we just received, which was $1,200 per person, and how that was supposed to make a significant impact in our economy, how much greater of an impact would that make if we just gave people the wages that they already earned? 
And here's the problem. Here's the most mind-blowing thing about where we're at in America right now is that wage theft is not treated as a criminal offense in most cases. It's pursued in civil court, which means that it's incredibly expensive for those who have had wages from them to get anything back. They have to go through the whole judicial process, hiring lawyers and legal counsel that they can't afford. And then, even then, they often don't get most of their wages back. In fact, it's almost impossible to get all of your wages back through that process. And so, in effect, wage theft is happens all the time without any recrimination, without any charges, and without any compensation to those who have been thieved against, who have been robbed. Explicitly addressed in the Bible. Explicitly condemned by God and His law. And treated as criminal, which is something that we often don't even do in this country. Or then there's even the example, I just read this through an ESPN article of all places, found this in an ESPN article about St. Charles, Missouri, and a case that happened here. And I found, they stated, and I had to go look it up for myself, but finding that in the state of Missouri, that being proven innocent does not guarantee a release from prison. What? <laughs> There's some incredibly complicated legalese that go in through this. But even after, if a person has been sent to jail and they're proved innocent later on, that does not guarantee that they will be released from prison. There's still an entire process that has to go through with it. And the district attorneys and whatnot have to decide if they're going to retry the case and go through a whole other series of, of, of steps and events that can keep a person in jail long after the judge has come down and said, no, this person's innocent. Insane. Another thing that is explicitly prohibited and talked against in God's laws for His people. All of these things, and there's so many more, contribute to this massive inequality that we're just now coming to grips with um, through the protests and through through the realization of, of what has happened and what is happening where we're at in America, and they all break God's laws. So God's laws, when you read them, they might feel an archaic, they might feel all relevant, but man, if, if we as Christians committed and dedicated ourselves to even keeping one of the Ten Commandments completely to its fullest extent, which Jesus calls us to, we would totally transform our communities. Pick one. Think about what does it look like to achieve this on its fullest extent, and what does our society do now? And it would be a radical change from where we, from how we operate. God leads us by directing us. He intercedes. He talks through us. He, he comes to us when we talk to Him in prayer through His Holy Spirit, through His Son Jesus. But He's also given us His Word. He's given us the law so that we would know what it looks like to live as followers of Him. But not only does He direct us through answering our prayer through His Word, which tells us how to follow Him, but He leads us by going before us. God goes before us. Look with me in verses 20 and 24. So, David, he defeats his enemies, and then he says, The Lord has broken through my enemies. 
before me like breaking through a flood. And in verse 24, God says, when you hear the sound of the marchings and the tops of the trees, then rouse yourself for the Lord has gone before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. God is the one who led the Israelite army into battle in this instance. He's the one who broke through the forces of the invading army. And David acknowledges it and he praises God for it. In verse in, in Psalm 18, in verses 27 through 30, he writes this. He says, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run up against a troop. And by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The way of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. And it's significant. What David's saying here, what he's acknowledging, what he's praising God for is significant because all the way back in in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 20, Israel's demanding that God give them a king so that this king can lead Israel into battle. And here you have the greatest king by Israel's own standards saying that I wasn't the one who led you into battle here. No. God led you into battle. I was just following God. Where in our lives is society calling for us to be leaders? Calling for us to be the ones out in front of them. Maybe you're a boss at a company. Or maybe you're in a managerial position, or you're a committee chair, or you're a teacher, or you're a parent. Maybe you're an older sibling leading by example of your younger siblings. Or maybe you're just older in general. If if you're still in school, perhaps you're in an older grade or, or an upperclassman. By de facto a leader, just by who you are and your age and your status and position. How do we lead in the context of our own lives, in the context of the workplace and at home and at church and with our family and with our friends? Because we can try to go and do all of the work ourselves. We can try to make things happen, to, to forge a new path forward, to innovate and to set up structures as we see fit and, and to discover all of this ourselves and try to do all of that grunt and legwork and hard work by ourselves. But we can also have the option of following the lead of God. Saying that as a leader, (laughs) I will choose to be a follower. And I will follow what God is directing me to do, who is infinitely more able than me, who actively goes before me. And so when I'm at work, when I'm at home, when I'm in church, when I'm considering and with my family, with my friends, when we come to a decision, when we come to a place where we are trying to discern what to do, where to go, I will choose, we will choose to pray. Choose to seek God's leadership, to inquire of God before we go into battle. And as we are acting, knowing that we already have his direction right here, we read through it, we study it, we become familiar with it. So that when we get into a position where we have to make the decision, when there's the idols on the battlefield, 
or there's a company plan going in, in, into place about how we're going to manufacture and produce these goods and of the ways in which we should do this. Should we do a, something that, that is healthy for our environment or something that cut costs and helps our bottom line? What does God say about it? How has he already directed us to act and to pray for it and then to follow him as he leads? We are able to follow because God leads us. He directs us, but he also goes before us. And so what does following look like? It looks like praying through decisions. It looks like consulting His Word. And I would add from other passages in the Bible, it's not explicitly stated in this one, um, though you can say it, get it from the first few verses, that talking with other people, He's given us a community of people and a Holy Spirit that is what holds together our fellowship in God and our union with Christ so that we might be working together to follow God. Because God does not simply sit on His throne. He doesn't stay up in heaven watching us and, and, and smiting us or punishing us or rewarding us based on what He sees us doing. No, He comes down to us. In fact, He came down to us as one of us, as Jesus. And He went through life. He gave us the example of what it looks like to live this life in humility, out of love for God and to do it perfectly in full obedience to His Word. It's something the word that Jesus uses a lot is obedience. And He was obedient to an extent that we never could be, but He was obedient to the extent that He died on the cross in our place. And so even in those times where we don't follow God perfectly, right? Because that's the other side of this, is it's so easy to condemn ourselves for when we don't follow God's lead. But Jesus died so that there is no condemnation in the law. So that even when God has directed us and we don't follow Him, we still find forgiveness. We still are able to be in relationship. God does not cut us off. He does not stop leading us as He did Saul anymore. Instead, He draws us back. Again and again and again. And He gave us, because of what Jesus did, He gave us not just His Son, but He gave us the Holy Spirit who lives within us, who's working in us. And though we may not always be able to discern what He's doing, is constantly molding us and shaping us so that we would be more like Christ in what we do. And discerning His direction, discerning His work, it takes patience and it takes diligence. And following Him requires maturity, <laughs> A lot of maturity in our faith and our relationship and in the exercising of those fruits of the Spirit. And we do it. We do it because salvation comes through God and God only. He is the one that we seek to follow, not ourselves, not any prevailing philosophy or wisdom or, or um, pattern for life that any human on earth is set forth for us or any other religion because God alone is the one who offers salvation. God alone is the one who offers eternal life, not just after we die, but right now as we live, that we might live with Him, that we might see the world 
through his light so that we might live life in the way that we were intended to, that we were created to in relationship with him, in relationship with each other and through the love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.